4: I do think that there's something truly banal about heterosexual dating <laughs> that is kind of fascinating, but again, not not in a good way.
3: Welcome to Here to Make Friends, a HuffPost podcast about the Bachelor franchise, where we lovingly snark on The Bachelor and Bachelor-adjacent
1: shows. Whether you love The Bachelor or love to hate it, we're here to break down every delicious moment with you. I'm Emma Gray. And I'm Lee Blickley. A 90s boy band star. A streaming service. LED-lighted personal pods. A deep well of underlying sadness. Emma, what do all of these things have in common?
3: Uh, I can think of one thing, Lee, and it's Love is Blind, the slightly dystopian but incredibly <laughs> gripping new dating reality
1: show on Netflix. Yeah, our new addiction and the world's new the addiction world's apparently. new addiction. Yeah, we received so many messages about the show, that we decided we owed it to you, our beautiful listeners, uh, to discuss it. <laughs> and ourselves, because we yeah. are selfish
3: creatures and we want to talk about it. Um, so for this episode, we're going to start out with a spoiler-free, other than some like light discussion of characters, which you know requires us to, to get a little bit into some of the stuff that happens the first couple episodes, uh, talk about the show and its structure. And then in the second half of this episode, we'll dive deeper, including some spoilers, about the finale, so you've been forewarned, along with Guardian columnist and author Jessa Crispin. Yeah, we had a great discussion with Jessa. I think you're going to love it. Um, but again, if you have not watched yet, do not listen. Do not listen to the second half.
1: You've been warned. You've been warned.
3: So, Lee. Let's start out. For for those of our listeners that might not have watched this epic journey yet, what is Love is Blind? (laughs) What is the structure and premise of this show?
1: Well, you know, Love is Blind is a marriage-focused social experiment uh, where a group of men and a group of women are placed in this living facility in Atlanta, and they're kept in separate quarters, uh, and they're left to speed date. Here's how it's going to work. The only time you're going to interact is in one of the private pods. Where they sit, but they can't see each other, of course, but they can talk for upwards of 10 hours about anything and everything. And then they decide based on those talks if they want to get engaged or not.
2: Now, once you choose the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, you'll propose. Just like that? (laughs) If they accept, you will finally get to see your fiance for the very first time.
3: And then the show kind of switches gears, and we follow, I believe, five remaining couples? I think it's six. Six, six, six six remaining couples who then go on to a vacay in Mexico. All-inclusive vacay. All-inclusive. Cancun. uh, And then they move into apartments together in the Atlanta area. All of the people who were cast are from the Atlanta, um, greater Atlanta area. And... Then they live together for three weeks and plan a wedding, plan a wedding Mm -hmm. and decide uh, at the altar whether or not to go through with
1: it. Yeah. So the weddings are all in the same place, the same boring venue, uh, and they must all get dolled up in wedding dresses and tuxedos. And they have their bridesmaids and groomsmen and their parents. And they're either going to get married and say, I do, or they're going to walk away from each other. <laughs> it's forever <a> <laughs> forever
3: and so that that last part the weddings is its own big you know 90 minute finale which actually just dropped today when we were recording this uh, on Thursday the 27th and that sort of brings us to something i found um really interesting and clearly as we talked about with the circle, indicates uh, a pattern for Netflix, and one way that they are choosing to delve into reality television is creating these these reality shows that have um, more of a suspenseful element than some of the ones they released before, like Queer Eye, Marie Kondo, uh, even Dating Around, and releasing them in these batches. So, I believe with the circle, there were maybe five different releases. Um, with Love is Blind, there are, I guess, four now because we had five episodes, then four episodes, the big finale. And then we learned this week that next Thursday there is going to be a reunion episode, which, which I can't I'm wait very for. excited yeah. for. Um, yeah. So now that we've kind of gotten down the basics and they probably already sound totally insane <laughs> to anyone who hasn't watched, but I swear it is much easier to follow when you're watching
4: it.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those shows that like you definitely hate watch. Uh you are immediately addicted to it, but you might uh, feel very icky inside icky when you're watching <laughs> it. Absolutely. But once you start, you can't stop. Again, cuz Netflix now knows how to add that suspense where every episode ends with some sort of cliffhanger that you need to tune in and then you're stuck again and again and again. <laughs> I
3: mean, really nothing like watching a bunch of 20 and 30 somethings who are like pretty high conventionally attractive people try to contort themselves into um, an incredibly sped up heterosexual marriage. Yeah. Nothing like it. Nothing quite like it. So, Lee, how did you feel about the pods? Because aesthetically... To me, it felt a a little bit similar to the circle in that everyone's physically isolated and we're seeing people um, in these kind of very curated small spaces speaking to each other. But the pods, which were a huge part of the trailer and are really like the center of the whole conceit of the show, we only actually see these people in the pods for the first episode and a half.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I wanted Nick and Vanessa Lachey to do their job and tell me more like, about the like pods. the timing? Yes. <laughs> um, Nick and Vanessa Lachey, <laughs> by the way, are you the mean hosts. Vanessa and, of course, obviously Nick,
2: <laughs> as oh he introduces God.
1: himself. I'm Vanessa Lachey.
2: I'm obviously Nick Lachey, her husband.
1: Of 98 Degrees fame, of to course. be clear. You know, to have hosts, though, their, their job is to help us as viewers at home kind of get into what the formula of the show is. Understand or, the pacing. Yeah. Explain the pods. Explain how they can be in there for 10 hours. We didn't know that until we read up on it. Um, explain how long they're there. Uh, who is in what pod? Do they each have an, their own pod? Are they spending equal amounts of time with, with all of the other people? Do which... they get to decide who they want to be with or do they have to actually sit with everyone out of... Um, you know what the producers are telling them to do. Yeah, I had I was very frustrated and
3: I hope that if they do a second season, which it seems like they probably will because it's been so uh, popular, that they do they are a little bit more explicit with the pacing with the pods and explain the way that the couples are kind of whittled down. Yeah. we again, we've read some interviews um with the creators and I believe that every day they were told to, Say who was their favorite. And mm-hmm. then the time got longer and longer with fewer and fewer people. Yeah. Um, and then at a certain point, they were able to basically spend all day in a pod talking to the same person.
1: Yeah. Uh, a couple like Cameron and Lauren who met uh in the pods, he is an AI scientist and she is a content creator. Um, you know, when they met and got engaged after three days, we I at least kind of craved a little bit more with. I was like, why? Them, because what happened three days later, I'm like, holy crap. They seem absolutely enamored with each other. And I do love them together, but I still didn't get a sense of, like, how long were they able to talk to each other? What did they really talk about? Um, did what did they... I like to see more substance? Exactly. Did they talk about politics? Did they talk about race since they are a mixed race couple? Um, things like that, which we saw glimpses of, but not really deep. The deep conversations that would have, you know, allowed them to get further into their love process to the point of an engagement.
3: And speaking of the cast, you know, the whole premise of the show is kind of set up as like, we're trying to see, like, is love really blind? Which we just want to point out, uh, misunderstands the meaning of the phrase love is blind yeah. as written by Shakespeare, but... Love is blinding. Yeah, it's, Not blind. which more accurately means love is blinding. Love blinds you to... um people's faults. Yeah. But but this show is really off, very, literally very literally in in the way our modern language would interpret it. So basically to say do do appearances matter? Mm-hmm. And yet everyone who is cast is very conventionally attractive, overwhelmingly thin, over like, very gender conforming,
1: mm-hmm. and the oldest contestant is thir- I think 34, 34 with Jessica. and the youngest is 24? Yeah, Mark.
3: So it's a—yeah, it's—you really don't—and and, and um, it's—although we see more people of color at the beginning, once you really get down to the couples, it's also overwhelmingly white.
1: Yeah, and if you think about it, too, there are—what? There has to be 15 women and 15 men in these— in the experiment. But we only get to know pretty much six Ten men people. And six yeah, women. People. There are a lot of different people that the show doesn't even introduce, doesn't even kind of give you a glimpse of who they are. They kind of just automatically stick to who they know were going to be in a couple, who they were going to follow, which is kind of like, you know, I still want to know the singles that maybe it didn't work out for, get to know them better, why the experiment didn't work for some and work for others. So maybe hopefully in season two, they'll learn from some of these mistakes. We also learned after the fact that there were actually two
3: more engagements yeah. that they basically just dismissed the couple They chose not to follow they them. They chose yeah. not to follow them. Um, apparently, they the uh, production team was only set up to film like five or six couples, mm-hmm. maybe only five. and. And they were shocked at
1: how many people actually ended up getting engaged. Yeah, they and they didn't had think anybody adjust, would. They thought maybe two couples. And- As I mean, understandably, I would too if I was producing the show being like, crossing my fingers, hopefully for one yeah, or two. And they ended up with eight. Yeah. I know I mentioned Cameron and Lauren earlier, but let's kind of run through the couples so people get a sense of who ends up with who and, and what we get with Love is Blind. Uh, first, we have Carlton and Diamond, which Carlton's the only queer single in the house, And he ends up with Diamond. And we kind of, you know, get this storyline about how the show tackles having a bisexual character, uh, a part of the quote unquote experiment.
3: Yeah. And just a warning, some light spoilers ahead. We can't really talk about this couple without getting into their storyline. So you've been warned. But Carlton expresses some pretty intense um, and obvious discomfort with his sexuality and speaks to um, alludes to the fact that he has experienced some trauma as a result of you know being a black man who is attracted to um, both men and women and this sort of comes to a head after the pods, when Carlton and Diamond are in Cancun, at the very beginning of the post, post-pod period, and Carlton um, shares with Diamond that he is bisexual, but not until they have already... Gotten, gotten engaged.
1: So she, of course, understandably, is taken aback by the fact that he didn't tell her this this very, very vital information. essential thing. Yeah.
4: I feel that. I feel that you weren't honest with me from the get-go. I felt like that should have been I feel established. I like I was honest.
2: I wanted you to get to know me for me. Yeah. That's always that is been part the of you, strategy that has never been It's never been an issue with girls. It's like, it's never. Then why didn't
4: you tell me in the beginning?
2: Because in the beginning, you will prejudge me. But you said it's never been an issue with girls. Would you have really, if I would have told you on the first date, would you have really given me a chance? You wouldn't have. I'd rather
3: Mm -hmm. you have told me up in front. And so she takes some space to think about it. And when they come back together, they have this blowout, which read to me... As a series of kind of triggers just missing each other. (laughs) Like, and there's been, you know, some discussion about whether Diamond was being biphobic. And I felt like where the show really stumbled is in kind of trying to force a show whose struct that structure is very intentionally built around straightness and then trying to shoehorn in some representation of, yeah. of queerness. And again, I would love um, dating shows to incorporate queerness more, but I thought it was almost unfair to to Carlton um, to force him kind of into being the representative of an entire incredibly... Yeah. Diverse community. When he clearly has a lot of a lot of trauma that he hasn't that he's still battling, that he's still with. Yeah. that he's still I mean, processing, he he and doesn't necessarily
1: even... handle the situation the best he could have. But we're seeing a lot of you know negative comments pointed di- in Diamond's direction, and it was kind of like you said, the way the show sort of handled having any sort of representation in the season, it just didn't. It was ham-fisted. Yes.
3: I thought that the the show itself was a bit ham-fisted and put these two people in a position um, where I think neither of them ultimately ended up coming off that well. Uh, but clearly we're coming at this, I think, just from two totally different perspectives. Diamond was, I believe, hurt and taken aback that information she considered to be essential to who this person is was not shared with her before getting engaged and... Um, Carlton reacted to that hesitation and need for space, you know, with all of the baggage of being being treated really cruelly and, and having experienced a lot of homophobia yeah. in the past. He was um, more
1: like, see, you know, see, Diamond, this is how people react. See, you're reacting the same way that I thought you would react, how other people have reacted, where she was kind of Reacting out of just being lied to um, before getting engaged to someone.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, we don't have any um, hard and fast opinions. We're obviously not as, as too white. Cis straight women, we are not the authorities on queer representation, and certainly not the authorities on the ways that race and queerness intersect in this interaction. Um, I do want to say that something I found interesting was that Queer Eyes Karamo commented on Diamond's Instagram, and he wrote, "I'm watching you, and you're amazing." Carlton was not in the space yet to respect you and your feelings. His sexuality was not the issue. It was his inability to communicate honestly based on the trauma of his past. And, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. So we'll kind of leave that there and move on to the, the other couples that lasted a bit longer.
1: Yeah. Next, we should talk about Kenny and Kelly. The uh, very charming, bland, white couple. Yep. A normal couple. <laughs>
3: <laughs> a normal, very white. for couple. Yeah,
1: normal for reality TV couple. Yeah. Uh, Barnett and Amber, who Barnett was, of course, one of those guys who fell uh, for multiple women in the pods and then made his choice. And (laughs) multiple
3: women were very into him. Mm -hmm. And something I've been talking about with my friend Alex is there seems to be, Barnett seems to sort of embody that reductress quiz. I don't know if anyone's seen that reductress quiz where it's like, is he hot or is he just tall and white? Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) I feel like that is very much Barnett, and I say this as someone who is does find Barnett to be attractive physically, but there's something that even in his
1: voice signaled like yes. overconfident charming white man. And we all know that guy. Like, I feel like most women have dated a Barnett in their lifetime. And a lot of <laughs> these women wanted to. Yeah, they all wanted to. Uh, we have Mark and Jessica. Mark, who's 24, and Jessica, who's 34. So they kind of grapple with their age difference
3: and, um, throughout the show. you know, we'll get into this a bit more with Jessa, but Jessica has probably been the most reviled character of all yeah. of them on Love is Blind which I think I've had a reaction to and have become a Jessica defender as a result but we've seen you know. we saw some
1: awful hate pointed at Jessica. I mean, tweets that were just really appalling. Like we probably awful. we don't even I don't want even to want read to read them. them. I'm looking at some of them right now. Just awful things and I have talked to Emma about this how I didn't find her necessarily likable. I wasn't necessarily hoping that she and Mark would end up together, but you know, the fact that I don't necessarily think someone <laughs> you know, is likable or great doesn't mean that she deserves the kind of hate that was thrown at her on social media. So I think everyone needs to um, maybe examine what they're throwing out there into the world. Yeah. And I think a lot
3: a lot ends up getting projected onto Jessica as she becomes kind of that archetype for a woman who is into her 30s, still single, like visibly yearning Mm -hmm. for a partner and yet, um, you know, struggling
1: to accept the love of a a good man yeah and who wouldn't unravel in these circumstances do you know what i mean well i mean we, we've we talked about this it, yeah. a lot Both it's gonna of us, be messy we know we'd be total nightmares on, on you know the bachelor and i'm sure on love is blind yeah. as well speaking of the bachelor we kind of mentioned uh when we were talking about the show how damien and gigi a couple on love is blind has a similar relationship to peter and victoria f on The Bachelor, oh yeah, that, you were
3: you were really
1: all about drawing that, yeah. And that parallel. one one of them runs away from confrontation, no matter uh, what the circumstance. Yeah, uh, Gigi likes to bolt. Yeah, again, this is why we do the podcast to really watch these reality dating shows and dig into the the real shit.
3: Yeah, um, another thing we see from Damien and Gigi is the. Attempt to sort of make a nod at the way that political differences might impact a relationship, but again, love is blind doesn't quite go far enough. We see a conflict alluded to, but we don't get any specifics.
2: Politics can be an issue in family, friends. You
3: think politics will be an issue?
2: You
4: are very opinionated?
3: If I'm asked questions. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand
4: that. Yeah. But I'm just saying. And I like, do
3: have like my own political opinions, but no, like not I'm sh- not gonna be like, that's wrong. Like, as long as I'm not being imposed on, like, about political beliefs, because those will not change.
2: You know, they will no ever change in any aspect at all.
3: No, those will never change. Gigi has given some interviews. Yeah, to the since, Daily Beast. To the Daily Beast, has she gave an interview to them and um, really expressed that she didn't want to comment on it because she didn't want.
1: People, you know, people to stereotype people to them or react to them in a certain way.
3: way. Uh, Emma but did I, her
1: digging, but you know, uh, I won't reveal. reveal. I, yeah, I have figured out her. So you can
3: too. Voter <laughs> registration,
1: but um, that's
3: probably I shouldn't be spreading it around. Uh, but yes, my my point is that there are these things that we talk about with the Bachelor that I think Love Is Blind at least has attempted to address, you know, surface conversations at the very minimum about finances, about Mm -hmm. race, about religion, religion, about sexuality. That's not to say that any of those things were accomplished necessarily in the most productive or positive way. um, But they definitely acknowledge those very real world things more than a show like The Bachelor
1: does. Absolutely. And both shows, too, have their Their formula of, you know, The Bachelor starts off where there's one guy with all of these women and the goal is to get engaged at the end. Of course, love is blind. The goal is to get engaged at the beginning. And (laughs) And get married at the end. And get married at the end, Uh, which, again, so much messiness, craziness, um, second guessing, all of that can happen within this time span. And we see that, which is why love is blind is... Highly, highly addictive and highly, highly troubling. I mean, yeah, just again, like a deep well of
3: of sadness and a lot of food for thought about our cultural obsession with heterosexual marriage and the way that women especially face still such an intense social pressure to find that coupling as soon as possible and um, And, yeah, I just think it, in the same way that The Bachelor tends to reveal a lot more than you might think about the world that we live in, I think that love is blind does as well. And um, that's part of the reason why we were so gripped by it.
1: Yeah. So, Emma, is love blind? Fuck no, Lee. (laughs) Is love blind? I'm just going to
3: put it out there. If I don't want to touch you, but we have great conversations. I'm not going to marry you. I'm not going to marry you. (laughs)
1: And on that note, time for a break. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll dive deep into Love is Blind with Jessa Crispin. And alert, spoilers are ahead.
3: If you want to bring coziness into your life, uh, and I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) Turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially right now, because the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary.
0: With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite Lux home blanket.
3: There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you Zola.
0: Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at zola.com. That z o l a.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
3: Sometimes there will be something that is just like nagging at me, bothering me about something in my life. And I just swirl it around and around and around in my head and don't quite know how to address it. And something that can really help me sort that through and like take action is therapy.
0: I completely agree. I've been really stressed lately because I've just been getting sick over and over again. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot of emotions and I don't even connect where they're coming from with the actual origin we all carry around these stressors right and when we keep them bottled up it can start to affect us negatively
3: therapy is a great safe space to get things off of your chest and figure out how to actually work through whatever's weighing you down
0: if you're thinking of starting therapy give BetterHelp a try Q-U-I-N-C-E dot slash L-T-S-I. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list, as they should because it's very important.
3: If that's you, then make this year the year you finally check it off your list with Babbel.
0: Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works.
3: Babbel's quick 10 minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Wow. That
0: is really fast. Their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world.
3: Plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning languages, Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I personally used Babbel before I headed off to Paris for three weeks, and it was so helpful just kind of giving me back the basic understanding of French, allowing me to interact with people in restaurants, in shops, and, you know, just not make a total fool of myself when in a foreign country.
0: Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners.
3: Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash LTSI.
0: Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash
3: LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash LTSI.
0: Rules and restrictions
3: may apply. So now it's time to get into the larger themes of Love
1: is Blind and stop trying to avoid spoilers. (laughs) To do that, we talked to Jessica Crispin, an author and Guardian columnist who wrote a piece in The Guardian titled Netflix's Love is Blind Makes One Wonder. Are straight people doing OK? The answer is no.
3: (laughs) But in that piece, Crispin writes that, quote, each subject is a portrait of the particular form of loneliness compulsory heterosexuality contains. Their lack of cynicism in this process would be refreshing if it weren't so baldly sad. Told their whole lives by their society, family, and social circles that marriage and family will complete them or fix them, each seems to have reached a point of desperation that leaves them open to manipulation and experimentation.
1: We read a lot of great pieces about Love is Blind, but Jessa really like. Just got it. Got what we were trying to say and got what we were thinking about when we were watching the show. So we really hope you enjoy our chat with Jessa.
3: Welcome to the pod, Guardian columnist and author of Why I'm Not a Feminist, A Feminist
1: Manifesto, Jessa Crispin. Thank you for being here, Jessa. We're so excited to have you on to
4: talk Love is Blind. (laughs) I'm so glad that this is the topic (laughs) that introduces me. To your audience, yes.
3: <laughs> well, that's that's kind of the whole premise of our podcast is to use things like silly dating reality shows to talk about, <laughs> you know, the real shit. So, <laughs> sure. Um. So you wrote a really fantastic piece in the Guardian, an analysis of Love Is Blind. I'm wondering what kind of drew you into to watching the show in the first place. I was asked
4: to, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not somebody who usually watches these dating reality programs. To me, they just seem unspeakably cruel. And I know people do get a kind of campy pleasure from it. But but to be honest, it, it kind of um, turns me off in a way that I that I just generally can't. So uh, yeah, so watching it under under duress, uh, I guess is a is a good way to have a different sort of take on it. Totally fair. We we understand that perspective absolutely too. Um,
3: you know, I for what it's worth, I started watching The Bachelor. I've only watched it for work, so, you know, it can be a real gateway.
1: Yeah. Uh, Sadly, I watched it not for work. <laughs> Again, a
3: gateway. <laughs> so, why do you think having watched Love is Blind, why do you think that it has become such a phenomenon? I mean, we've seen at least in the last week it's been consistently the most streamed show on Netflix?
4: I think just the extreme version of, of really heterosexuality. It, it really gets at, I think just how deranged contemporary heterosexuality has become. Um, in a way that I think some of the other sort of Netflix dating shows that they've tried to do just don't. Um, yeah, I think that there's something about this idea that we're, that love is supposed to be a soul connection and marriage is supposed to be only about love and never about things like rights that you get from the state. <laughs> um, the, it, to me, it just seems um, totally insane in a like, heightened kind of um, exploration of the insanity of, of heterosexuality.
1: Yet, uh, traditional gender roles are pretty essential to the structure of Love is Blind, even if the individuals featured all seem to live independent lives. And you write that, quote, while the men mostly speak of their search for a spouse as a quest to acquire the next prize in their quest for adulthood, the women suffer from their lack of emotional intimacy and company that the romantic partner is supposed to provide. So can you expand on that point a little bit? I think
4: that... For the most part, getting married sort of adds something to the status of men and detracts it from the status of women Uh, in the sense of that, if you look at rates of things like salary, health, happiness, and so on over a man's life and over a woman's life, after marriage, men's salaries go up. In you know, in a general uh, average kind of way, they have a sort of social status that they didn't have before—a kind of respectability. Women, on the other hand, they their salaries tend to go down, their career opportunities tend to become limited, whether or not they take time off to have children and that sort of thing. Um, and also, their their sort of social circles um, shrink after marriage in a very dramatic way. So I do think that men go into the search for a spouse just with different expectations and desires than women do. And I think that women still, you know, were are indoctrinated into this belief that emotional completeness comes through the romantic partner more than the friendship circles. I do think that that has changed over the last 10 years or so. But I do think that certainly the kind of um, people who maybe go on television in order to find a life partner um, may be a little bit still uh, deep within that belief system um, uh, as we could see on love is blind. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense to me. And I I
3: find that sort of fundamental tension to be, really, really fascinating. I mean, obviously, we've seen this mainstreaming of feminism, but also this almost concurrent like explosion of the uh, bespoke wedding industry. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you spoke about the uh, women's career opportunities and salaries often do suffer um, when they are married and have children and men's men are sort of uh, financially rewarded and yet the this like idea of almost compulsory heterosexual marriage to me feels like a greater social pressure on women like are is the culture just still struggling to kind of really sell straight women on on this concept <laughs> yes yes <laughs>
4: well one of the things that i found so interesting about the couples in love is blind is how for the most part the men were all in and it was the women who were like sort of freaking out and having these moments of like i don't know what i'm doing um you know that was certainly the case with um god i can't remember any of their names um (laughs) lauren and cameron yes yes. she she was much more hesitant than he was and he was just like look i have this house you can fit in the house she's like can i keep my house (laughs) um And and yeah, and so I do think that there's this sort of um, building resistance to that. You know, you can live you can have this daydream and this fantasy that is that is sort of built into your life from a very young age. And then once you actually see it up close, it can be a little um, it can be a little startling.
1: Yeah, we thought that a lot, too particularly about Jessica and her situation and how she kind of and Kelly like yeah. it was it was really the women in their 30s mm-hmm.
3: which I as mm-hmm. as a woman who is in her early 30s and like um, you know spent a lot of years being single like I was just very struck by the way that you seem to see these these women who had really built independent lives but who wanted partnership grapple with what does that look like and have I failed if I, you know, don't want to compromise some of these things for this one person who's really nice and wants mm-hmm.
4: me. Yeah, and the men were very nice and they they definitely wanted those women for whatever reason. <laughs> um they all seemed completely sure in a way that uh was a little horrifying. But but yeah, the the women's um loneliness kept being referenced, you know, the, the friends would talk about it. The mothers would talk about it. They themselves would talk about it. And yet this thing that was supposed to solve all of that, most of the women in the end were like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. You talk about that loneliness and your peace, especially when Jessica
1: says, you know, coming home is the worst part like coming back to an empty home where like we mentioned, she's just kind of yearning for marriage, but she." She starts to question it when she, you know, says yes to someone like Mark, who she knows isn't fit for her, but she's trying to fit into, uh, you know, what Love is Blind is kind of making
4: her do, which is to get married at the end of it. And, you know, it was a very nice house. So she's obviously very successful. Um, And so this idea that, you know, she travels for work and that's very exciting. And then coming home is depressing to her. You know, that's and... You know, we we, you, we could talk for hours about the sort of failed promise of feminism, of mainstream feminism that told women that, you know, their careers were going to be the fulfilling thing. Um, you know, we can talk about um, just the basic structure of the nuclear family and how it sort of replicates loneliness and oppression. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, it's it's a woman who has what looks like just about everything has this opportunity for a partnership with somebody who adores her and just can't, can't accept it at all. Another couple
3: that we were intrigued by is Amber and Barnett, um, mostly because they are some of the few people we see really kind of have uh, an honest conversation about finances, which I found very interesting, especially because that's not the kind of thing that you usually see on this kind of program. What was your feeling, you know, watching Amber explain to her new
4: fiancé that she had uh, Sephora credit card debt? Yeah, well, that was very interesting, too, because she was repeatedly talking about how she she could work she just doesn't want to work and then and then the request to be a stay-at-home mom and everything so that's obviously playing on sort of the the masculine role of the provider um and so he's supposed to take her on not just as um the wife and the mother who won't work in order to raise his children but also the the failed attempt at uh, finishing school and the debt that uh that was created there like it, it's just like right it's just an, an extreme form of heterosexuality mm-hmm. um and all of the traps that come with it really sort of laid bare and i think that's what's actually compelling about the show um but not not in a good way.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was interesting too. Barnett's reaction to that, which normally a guy would be like, "Oh, she wants to stay home and raise my kids," but he was a little more freaked out about it um, in terms of having to somehow find a way to pay off her student debts and things like that.
4: Yeah, all of them seemed, for the most part, pretty well off. Like there was a lot of home ownership, um, despite the fact that they were, you know, from mid twenties to mid thirties. That's not, um, I, I would guess, uh, the average for that particular demographic. Is you know that that many people would own their home. Um, it, it it and all of them are obviously very conventionally attractive as well, and all of them are are very uh, gender conforming, um, heteronormative to an alarming degree. You know, to that point where one of the men was rejected because he had had sexual encounters with men in the past and she said some possibly homophobic things in in the fight in the breakup fight after um so yeah
3: yeah that's you know you're that's perfectly dovetailing into what was going to be our next question just about the fact that i i felt like in the marketing love is blind almost tried to position itself as somewhat more open and honest and progressive and deep than a show like the bachelor, you know, one where people date across races and discuss sexuality and yet as you were saying with the the carlton uh diamond relationship and carlton is really like the one queer person that we saw featured on this show they really seem to stumble with dealing with that gracefully like why do you think mm-hmm. that you know reality Dating shows other than maybe MTV's You're the One that did an entire season that was all um, gender non conforming um, and pansexual. Uh, why do you think, in general, these dating shows haven't caught up with where our culture's changing conceptions of sexuality are? Like, it's, I find it incredibly frustrating. Um, and I'm wondering how you think they could do better.
4: I think that the reason that they do it is because the, the narrative of heterosexuality is so predictable right um there there are so few new moves within uh monogamous heterosexuality and it is remarkably straight this show uh there was only one uh interracial couple there was um, only one bisexual figure who was then ultimately rejected in a pretty humiliating way um, which I thought, yeah, was handled so horribly by by the show to allow him to just be sort of emotionally tortured as if that's going to be inevitable for a man who has had sex with other men to face that level of not just rejection but but actual humiliation. Um so yeah, so I think that, you know, the people that make these shows are lazy <laughs> um, and they want easy stories and we want easy stories. And part of the pleasure of watching a show like this is like, oh, I'm I'm so far advanced from these crazy people. Like <laughs> yes. I would never behave like that. Um, and so I think that that's why there was... Another dating show on Netflix And now I can't remember what it was called Dating Around Yeah, yeah And they had gay couples on that show And it was nowhere near as sort of culturally Not relevant, but, you know um, It was uh, not in the zeitgeist The way that this has entered it Yeah, so And and I think that maybe we're just not Interested yet in that, actually Mm Mm-hmm
1: Yeah, that whole your comment, too, about, you know, laziness uh, goes back to even the fact that we didn't even get a lot of time in the pods to get to really know these people or what their relationships were even about, what attracted them to each other. Um, Shows like this kind of skip over the meat of things just to, again, get us audience hooked and addicted to keep watching and keep binging
3: right they're all basically become interchangeable even you know even with Gigi and Damien the one couple where we get some allusion to political conflict they avoid going into any specifics or really diving deep
4: right and I think that actually Barnett's story is maybe the most relatable one in that these conversations are essentially the same at least so Versions of them that we're seeing. So yeah, why not just fall in love with three people? Like, what is there <laughs> actually to differentiate any of them? Which is kind of the horror of these shows like The Bachelor and so on. It's just like, well, just pick one at random. Like, it's the new arranged marriage. It's You know, maybe something can grow out of that. Or there'll be a messy, dramatic breakup and they can film that too, you know. I do think that there's something truly banal about heterosexual dating <laughs> um, that, that is kind of fascinating but again not not in a good way
3: I, I've also been really fascinated by the general public's reaction to Jessica you know mm-hmm. she's got engaged to this nice guy 10 years her junior she struggles to connect with him sexually and she's a bit messy you know into drinks a lot of wine, lets her dog may- drink wine maybe into Barnett yeah. and and sure maybe like exhibit some behaviors that might make her come off like not the best but w- what I see when I look on Twitter is just a really really intense level of hatred and vitriol directed at her and I'm curious why you think she's the one to have kind of emerged as this like, universally hated villain like what are we projecting onto her
4: oh everything that we hope that we're not I mean sort of high maintenance desperate for a partner and yet unable to accept the love of that partner when he shows up um a kind of emotional messiness and too muchness an inability to just sort of walk away from a humiliating experience and uh, with Barnett um, and immediately recover with dignity and grace. Um, and also the the sort of older woman wants f- a family, hasn't found the right partner, has this empty house and a too intimate relationship with her dog because it's probably the only living figure that she has a lot of contact with. Um, so yeah, she's she's everybody's... Nightmare, um, as far as who they are worried that they're going to turn out to be. And honestly, like I'm married to somebody ten years younger than me, and it's harder than you think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, tell us all the ins and outs of that. No, but the, we've been having a lot of debates in the office with a lot of people about the fact that, yes, Jessica is unlikable, which I, you know, I wasn't necessarily like her number one fan. But then when you think about it in that way, you know, just because you're unlikable doesn't mean that you're wrong.
4: And we all know, uh, we all know about the manipulations of how these things are edited. We all know about reality contestants who. Uh, say that they don't recognize who they've been created as by producers and editors. Um, and I do think that they're definitely playing that side of it up as well it, to show her in this light because you're not going to have a hit show like this unless you have somebody to root against. Oh yeah, you gotta have you gotta have like the the desperate you know aging woman. Uh,
1: <laughs> and then you also have to have someone like Gianina. Um, who seems to be, you know, just great TV. She's just every line out of her mouth. uh, you know, she is that stereotypical reality TV show personality. And
3: yet somehow it's the the women that end up being like the the spark plugs and yeah. the punching bags, you know, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I' just it's all it's all incredibly revealing. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of your piece, You know, you you kind of guess at who the real winners of this experiment may be. Um, You know, you you say rather than proving whether or not love is blind, the true experiment is about forcing people into a more and more extreme form of heterosexuality to see if they are capable of breaking from a lifetime of conditioning. Have you watched the finale? And if you have, do you think there are any winners?
4: (laughs) Um yes, I did watch it. I do feel like every marriage that didn't happen was probably the right choice. Um and I don't know if anybody uh learned anything from this experience. <laughs> the fact that they they have pretty much all signed up for the reunion um would suggest otherwise. But um, I do think, you know, we were talking about Jessica. I, I do think ultimately her turning Mark down and not marrying him was not only the right choice, but, um, the more mature choice and not to just, you know, be like, well, this is my last shot maybe, and I can force this and possibly ruin this person's life <laughs> in the process. I think that I, you know, I respected her for that. Yeah, I I completely agree. And
1: the same thing with Kelly as well. Um, both of them, mm-hmm. you kind of saw a similar thread in what they were talking about when they were sort of explaining the decisions they made, which were, yes, the right decisions to make.
3: <laughs> yeah, and now it's been two years. I'm sure they're glad they're not married and probably divorced from those people. <laughs>
4: yeah. Um, I do think that the format was unspeakably cruel. <laughs> I, ha- I do have to say the the fact of like forcing these people to make the ultimate decision uh, in wedding outfits in front of their families oh, yeah. is incredibly cruel thing to do. And all of the people who make the show are probably going to hell, I would imagine. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I got that in there. <laughs>
3: No, you're 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 so right. It was like any ending of uh, The Bachelor, but like on many drugs. We we think
1: about that with The Bachelor all the time is that why do these people have to get engaged at the end? Why can't they just date? But this format sort of forces them to not only get engaged within like three days, but to walk down the aisle and humiliate themselves possibly in front of people who still don't really understand why they, Uh, join the show in the first place some of the friends and family members who are just baffled by this concept yeah I think it would really put me off of wedding dresses for life tight low cut yeah (laughs) (laughs) same wedding shop same wedding venue different flowers yeah
3: oh Oh my gosh just uh, before we let you go I'm curious what your take is on the aesthetics of the show because I found especially the finale to be incredibly bleak in that way and sort of speak to what you're saying about this interchangeable nature of kind of the heterosexual marriage plot.
4: Yeah. It's hard to make an argument exactly against it because the whole bespoke wedding industry and the whole, like, let's create a unique experience just for you um, and spend tens of thousands of dollars in the process is also incredibly predatory and, and, and weird. I kind of liked that it was just so obviously some hotel basement <laughs> and just really grim. It's like, no, this is this is really what you're doing. You are really marrying somebody that you do not know. And you're sitting in a hotel basement, um, probably wearing like a discount wedding dress made out of synthetic fabric. No, this is what you're doing. These are the choices that you've made that have led you here. Good luck.
1: Yeah, well, the men the men are in like the whiskey bar wine room and oh the women God. are surrounded by their family drinking champagne and getting their hair and makeup done.
3: Yeah, just a, yeah. a whole lot of cheap white drapery. And uh, I think that <laughs> says a lot. And I think that's a perfect note for us to end on. <laughs> Jessa, thank you so much for chatting with us. I mean, we just find this stuff fascinating. And for everyone listening, you should really go... Read Jess's fantastic piece yeah, in The Guardian. It nails it. Thank you. And that's it for Here to Make Friends. Thanks to our guest, Jessa Crispin, and our producers, Nick Offenberg and Sarah Patterson.
1: Please subscribe to Here to Make Friends wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a moment of our Bachelor recaps and any bonus episodes. And give us a five star rating and review. You can also give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Here to Make Friends Pod. And you can follow us individually on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Lee Blickley and at Lee BZ. And I'm at Emma Lady Rose. We'll be back next week for the Bachelor's Women Tell All Special.